this way. Um, before I forget, though, I need to make a slight correction in the announcements that were just made. The, the youth event that's happening this evening actually starts at 4, not at 5. If you come at 5, the pizza will probably all be gone, so come at 4, okay? Uh, all right, so that said, yeah, I, it, it was a great privilege for me to, to bat lead off for this uh, summer series in the Psalms about prayer. Uh, way back in uh, the beginning of the summer, Psalm 23, you may remember that. Now, now I get to be the closer as well to continue that baseball metaphor. And I can assure you there's going to be no extra innings. As much as you may have liked this series, we got to move on. We got a, a great series on, uh, on, uh, to, uh, that goes with our outreach effort in the fall. Uh, we'll be starting next week with uh, a look into John chapter 4. One of my favorite passages, I encourage you to, to look ahead into that as well and do some preparatory study of your own. Uh, today, though, we're going to be in uh, Psalm 86, if I can get the clicker to work. Oh, there we go. Okay, uh, Psalm 86, and uh, again, this is a, a great, I, I think this is a great place to end up. Uh, I'll talk about that a little bit more in the intro coming up, but before we get into that, uh, this has been a series on prayer. Let's pray. Let's pray a little bit more, okay? Pray with me. Our great God, we bow before you. We bow humbly. We recognize your greatness and, uh, and our need. And uh, Lord, I, I pray that you will prepare our hearts for your message, that you'll speak to us powerfully today, uh, my, my heart as well. And, uh, and especially, Lord, I pray that I don't get in your way in any way. God forbid that I should mislead your people, even in the slightest. So, Lord, speak through me, um, and, but it may it be your word that has the power. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so there we go. Uh, Psalm 86. I, uh, this is one, another one of many that David wrote, and I think it's a great place to wrap this up. I, when James was putting the, uh, the series together and... and when he was selecting the psalm that we should use as the final one, I think there were several places he could have gone with it, but I, I kind of like Psalm 86 as a landing place for this series. Uh, for one reason, uh, some commentators uh, have noted that it draws from many of the other psalms. It takes uh, statements from different psalms and weaves them into a mosaic and creates a whole new psalm out of it. And so that's sort of a, then a survey even at, at some level of the, of the Psalter. But also, it's been a series on prayer, and in this psalm you'll see a lot of the elements of prayer that, we, that are kind of essential to a, a good prayer. And maybe... I don't know, guys, it doesn't, there we go, there we go. Okay, so uh, first off, you'll see that David comes to God in humility with an acknowledgement of his reliance on God's grace. Um, he offers praise and thanksgiving towards God. These are always good things to do in your prayer life. And then also he brings his supplications. He asks God for guidance, for strength, for protection and deliverance from his enemies. Uh, we're going to read through the, the psalm. And we're going <laughs> to, there we go, it takes about three shots. Uh, if you want to follow along as we read, we're going to read all 17 verses because the power is in God's word, right? Really, right? At the end of the day. So we're going to read them. And uh, if you want to follow along with the Bible that's under the seat in front of you, it'll, you'll find the psalm on, on uh, 494, page 494. But it'll also be on the screen if you just want to follow on there. Turn it on. Let's see. 
There we go. That's the problem. Is it on now? Okay, not too far. <laughs> All right, we'll get the te technical difficulties worked out. Hang with us. So let's read together. Uh, Prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who will call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O oh Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Okay, so let's pull some of this apart a little bit. Uh, starting in verse 1, we see here a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. I kind of like the New American Standard rendition a little bit better. For this verse, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. We tend to think of poor in those terms as uh, uh, talking about material wealth or the lack thereof, in fact. But afflicted, I think, is a little broader sense. It may involve a lack of material means, but it also can be any other kind of affliction as well. And if we look at this, we see... David. Now, remember, David is the anointed king of Israel. In fact, he was anointed for many years before he actually became king, but he still knew his destiny. He knew that God was with him, and yet he definitely did have a kind of a roller coaster of a life, right? He had times when he was definitely very needy and put upon. And I got thinking, if, if this is true of the anointed king of Israel, how much more is it true of me, right? And in the last few years, as many of you know, I and my family have gone through a pretty severe trial. And um, when I, in the midst of all that, I spent a lot of time in the Psalms, especially the Lament Psalms, and I had highlighted this verse in my, in my uh, scripture because it was speaking so much of my, where I felt I was at the time, for sure. But really, if we think about it, we all have a very deep constant need for God, right? Every breath is a gift, and we would be in a terrible way for sure if it were not for God's blessing, right? 
Okay, moving on to verse 2, the first half of verse 2, David says, Preserve my life, for I am godly. So David claims to be godly. Okay, that's fine. And indeed, we see in 1 Samuel 13, 14, God calls him a man after his own heart, which would kind of be the definition of a godly, it seems, right? And in fact, uh, Acts 13, 22 kind of uh, references that. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't this the same David uh, who committed adultery with Bathsheba? And then when his scheme to cover it all up didn't quite go so well, he had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, a Hittite, essentially murdered by the Amorites in battle. You can read that story, the whole sordid tale in 2 Samuel 11. Uh, really, I think one of the saddest stories in all of Scripture, really, because Uriah wasn't just another guy. Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. Thirty men who were exceptionally loyal and fierce warriors for David. So this marked not only adultery and ultimate murder, but a great betrayal, a treachery. Uh, and it's just very saddening to me to even think about that. It's like, David, what are you doing here? Okay. Um, so, so we see that the source of David's godliness certainly wasn't his moral purity in any sense. It's certainly not perfectly true, right? He, he was no paragon. But before we get too hard on poor old David, let's remember where Christ put the bar for these things. In his Sermon on the Mount, he said this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Hmm. And a little earlier in that same sermon, he said this, You have heard that it was said that to those of old you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Hmm, again, anybody but me feeling a little inadequate right now? See, only Jesus clears the bar that he has set, right? People, we have got to come to grips with this reality. There's enough darkness in all of our hearts that given the right circumstances, given the right sequence of events, we all could be drawn into even gross sin. Now, I've lived with my lovely wife for 40 years, and I'm trying, I can't even hardly imagine the circumstances that would draw her into gross sin, but I have to believe it's true even of her because that is what the Bible says about us. We're all just wretched sinners, right? But for the grace of God. <laughs> there is so much hope in that statement, but for the grace of God. Okay, so what do we say about David's godliness? One key to it, I think, is his quick repentance. It's not that he's so morally pure, but once he comes to a realization that he is in sin, he's quick to repent. We see that uh, story in 2 Samuel chapter 12, where Nathan the prophet comes to him. Now, at, at this point, when Nathan comes to David, David has been in this sin pattern now for months, right? 
And it's like a giant blind spot. He's not even kind of aware how off the rails he has gone. And Nathan tells him a story. He says, you know, you're, you're wrong. And David quickly repents. And in fact, as a result of his repentance, he wrote Psalm 51 about the whole business. Uh, we're not going to go there. I left his homework for the student. But it's, that's a powerful psalm there. Okay, so uh, points of application for us. Number one, it helps to have an accountability partner. David had Nathan the prophet. We don't all have a prophet sitting around to be our accountability partner, but somebody who's willing to shine the light into the blind spots in our lives that, will, that loves us enough to ask the hard questions. Those kind of people help us break the sin patterns that might be forming in our lives. We also need to be in continual repentance. The Apostle John said this to his children in the, in the faith. He said, if we, note he says we, including himself in the statement, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, you need to understand that the tense of the verb confess here in verse 9 carries the sense of a continuous process or habit, something that is ongoing. So this confession business is supposed to be a regular part of our lives where we recognize the sin that we've uh, been committing and confess it to God and repent. Um, in these latter uh, years in my life, I've been in increasingly drawn to the redemptive nature of our God, uh, understanding the critical importance of the fact that he is a redeemer. And in this sordid tale, there is a clear redemptive element to it. The, the first child, if you go back and read the story, the first child that resulted from the union of David and Bathsheba actually was sickly and wound up dying, and that was part of God's judgment against David and his sin. If you read the story, that's what Nathan tells him. But there was a subsequent child born to that couple. His name was Solomon. And you may remember that Solomon would go on to write significant portions of the Old Testament and actually be in the Messianic line. So as ugly as a tale of all this is, God still turned it around and made some greater good come out of it in the form of Solomon. And I just love that element. Okay, um, in the latter half of uh, verse 2, it says this, Save your servant who trusts in you, you are my God. And I think we see here a second element of David's godliness, his trust in God. And you know that he trusts deeply in God. Otherwise, when he was a young man, that whole Goliath thing, right? That is completely unthinkable. It's ridiculous, that whole episode, unless David was fully trusting in his God. Okay, so what do we see about David's godliness in all of this? David often reflected the divine nature, and you may re remember that we talked about that some when we were studying Psalm uh, 112 a little earlier in the summer. But at times, he kind of got horribly off base. So the essence of his godliness, I think, is this. Number one, he trusted wholly in his God. And when he departed from that trust and started going his own way and doing his own thing, and it was really ugly, he was quick to repent once he became aware of that. 
I think people, if we will follow that same basic pattern, we will be very healthy, right? We too will be godly. Trust God, repent when you mess it up, right? Okay, so that was verse 2, only 15 more verses to go. Okay, good. It was a joke. We, we will move it along more quickly going forward, trust me. But in, in verse 3, uh, we, we read this. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. If you are reading in the King James Version, you'll note that it says merciful, where it says here gracious. Uh, really, I've kind of always considered those as flip sides of the same coin anyway. If nothing else, they are certainly very com complementary elements of God's character, that he's both gracious and merciful. But I, I got from Strong's, in my study, Strong's Concordance said this about what grace means here. It's God's condescending kindness, moved to favor by petition. And I kind of like that. It, in this case, it's David's petition, but God listens to your petitions as well. So engage the Almighty, because he is gracious. He is condescending. He is moved to favor by your petitions. And note that his pleading is persistent all the day. All the day he's engaging with his God. We should also be walking in a pattern of God consciousness, a, a praying without ceasing in a manner of speaking. Whatever else you're doing, do it in an attitude of prayer, right? Okay, uh, moving forward to verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Again, New American Standard, I, I like it a little bit better. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, and abundant in loving kindness to all who will call upon you. Uh, Matthew Henry, in his commentary, said this about that. He is a sin-pardoning God. Not only he can forgive, but he is ready to forgive more ready to forgive than we are to repent. And I think he's probably true in that assessment, right? God is at the ready. He is ready. All he needs is for us to repent and come to him, and he pours out his forgiveness. Okay, fast forward to verse 10. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Uh, not too long ago, Arthur Shepard uh, preached on Psalm 121. He, it was all about creation, God of wonders. And man, he was singing my song. Uh, as, a, as a scientist myself, I love digging into uh, the brilliant engineering that God has done in creating this, uh, this universe. And uh, is uh, Shepard Remo? In, yeah, there he is. Come on up, Shepard. Yeah, bring your mom. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, isn't he, isn't he cute? Look at this little guy. How about it, huh? <laughs> this, little dude's a, this little dude's a miracle on, on multiple levels. But, but I, what I want to get at today is, it was how old is he now? Seven months. Seven months. So seven months plus nine months. About 16 months ago, this cute little package was but a single cell, right? And over the course of nine months in, in Ica's womb, those cells divided and divided some more and kept dividing. And eventually they started differentiating and some became muscle cells and bone cells. And then somehow the skin cells knew that they had to be on the outside of the package, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and it's brilliant, right? We, 
we, we kind of start taking this for granted because, frankly, it happens four or five times every second somewhere on the planet a baby is born. But it amazes me that this ever works. Okay? Uh, thank you. You can, you can go back to your seat now. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, and, and see, all of these types of things just amaze me that this created order works. And I was often, I've often wondered, I've been confused how our atheist friends will tend to look down on us, us with our faith in God uh, as though we're like some kind of uneducated, you know, ignoramuses or something. And I, and I don't really, I didn't really understand that until recently I heard something from Dr. John Lennox. He's a mathematics professor at Oxford University and a Christian apologist. And he had this phrase, God of the gaps. He said, we do not postulate a God of the gaps. God of the gaps. I think that's the key for why the atheists... See, the, the atheists tend to group anybody who has any kind of faith in a deity with the pagans of old who didn't understand certain physical phenomena, so they made up a god for it. Like the sun. Brilliant, bright ball in the sky, can't even look at it, lots of heat and light. Uh, it's important, so well, it must be a god of, or something, right? The Egyptians called it Ra. But that was their ignorance. No, we worship a god increasingly because of what we do know. It's, we don't have a God of the gaps. We have a God who is brilliant. We understand his created order to some degree. We've only begun to understand it, all right? And we praise him as the engineer of all that is. It, it, I, to borrow briefly from a, uh, a previous sermon, uh, several years back, uh, back for who, those of you who remember when Bill Walker was here, we did uh, Without Faith It Is Impossible to Please God series. You may remember that. And I did a sermon on faith, the, the world and faith, right? Talked about all this creation, creation stuff, and it was great fun. Um, a snippet of that, we were talking about that biological cell. Remember, we were talking about Shepard here. He started out, like all of us, as a single cell. And that cell is the DNA factory that makes all of this stuff work. In Darwin's day, it was literally a black box to them. It was just a little dot. They had no insight into the inner workings of that cell. Now we know this is an incredibly complicated machine. Uh, it's what uh, Michael B., Dr. B., he at Le uh, Lehigh University uh, uh, called irreducibly complex. There's so much going on there, and it all has to be there. If any little piece of it isn't there, none of it works. And, and like, remember this diagram? Maybe you saw this, still had this picture, this replication of the DNA and all of the, the proteins and enzymes and different stuff, and I'm not a biologist, so it, it, I don't understand the even beginning of this, but it's amazingly complicated, all right? So here's the thing. You don't have a reason to be defensive in the creation, in the origins discussion. It's the atheist that should be on the defensive in the origins discussion because they don't have any explanation for this. They have no idea how to get here. I don't give them all the time that they want. It doesn't matter because all the natural forces tend to destroy this complexity. It doesn't create it. Okay. 
So, so don't let them put you on the defensive. Our God is great, and his engineering is brilliant. Okay, we got to move on. I could spend all day on that. We can't, don't have time. Uh, verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Let's look at the first part of that. Uh, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. I want to focus on that word way. Uh, it, is, uh, it means the course of life, a course of one's life. It's more fully developed in Psalm 25 which is a great little psalm. We don't have time to go there. Again, more homework for the student. But I do want to make the connection to Psalm 1. It's the same word that appears in verse 1 of that psalm, and you may remember Kevin Newsom uh, bringing that message to it. It's a great little psalm, by the way. I encourage you to actually memorize it. Six verses, I think you can pull that off. It's a great psalm. But it contrasts, as Kevin pointed out, God's way with man's way, the godly way versus the wicked way. All right. But then in the second half, there's this interesting little phrase. And the first time I read it, wow, I said, that's a really cool phrase. Unite my heart to fear your name. And here David is asking God to give him an undivided heart that reveres him. Um, and with that, I'd like to call up George Hornigold to sing a song that he has written about this very psalm. As I was uh, reading through the scriptures nine years ago, this uh, song captured me just like uh, these verses did, just like they did with Jack. So written on July 5th, uh, 2014. Teach me your way, teach me your way, teach me your way, oh Lord. And I'll walk in your truth, I'll walk in your truth, I'll walk in your truth, oh Lord. Grant an undivided heart, an undivided heart. That I may fear your name, grant an undivided heart, an undivided heart. That I may fear your name, and I will praise you, praise you, O Lord, with all of my heart. And I will proclaim you, proclaim you, O Lord, with all of my heart. I will glorify your name, I will glorify your name forevermore. I will glorify your name, I will glorify your name forevermore mm -hmm. 
I lift up my soul, lift up my soul, lift up my soul to you. For you alone are great, you alone are great, you alone are great, oh Lord. And great is your love, great is your Great is your love for me, and great is your love, great is your love, great is your love for me, for you have saved me, forgave me, you washed my sins away, and you have cleansed me. And heal me, you are merciful every day. I will glorify your name, I will glorify your name forevermore. I will glorify your name, I will glorify your name forevermore. I will glorify your name, I will glorify your name forevermore. I will glorify your name, I will glorify your name forevermore. Thank you, George. Uh, that was that's the first time I heard that song, too. I thought it was pretty powerful stuff. I appreciate that contribution to the message. Uh, music can be really powerful in engaging our hearts. Uh, okay, getting my wits back around me here. Uh, so we see that David asked for the undivided heart, and then with that undivided heart, he gives thanks to God in verse 12. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Why? For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. See, God's steadfast love, that loving kindness, drives his redemptive plan, saving us all from death, not only the fear of physical death, but of ultimate spiritual death as well, if we will just call on him. Remember verse 5, in case you've forgotten, here it is. Here it is. For you, O God, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. So do you see the essence of the gospel in this? The good news, right? If we will humble ourselves, recognize our need, call upon God, and ask for his forgiveness, he is standing at the ready. He's, in fact, anxious to forgive, right? He will grant that forgiveness. And he's able to because he has already provided the Redeemer, the Savior, the Christ, who has made the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so now he can offer us his righteousness and his forgiveness. If you're sitting out there either 
in the auditorium or out in in uh, the ether, wherever you are, and you have never settled accounts with God, I encourage you to do it right now, just in your heart, right there. Humble yourself and call out to him. Claim the righteousness of Christ and his forgiveness. And if you don't really understand exactly what I'm talking about, please don't leave here today without getting it sorted out. Come talk to me afterward. Find an elder. Turn to the person next to you. I don't care. Don't leave today without getting that sorted out because your eternal destiny depends on it. Okay. All right. One final application point. Pray the Psalms. Um, Nick Keefe, uh, a couple months ago in our uh, men's prayer breakfast that we do once a month. Uh, Dennis was just talking about that in his announcements. But a couple months ago, Nick Keefe gave us a, the devotional, and he was quite transparent about the struggles he had had in his prayer life. Um, he, was, he was seemed easily distracted, was having trouble connecting, didn't feel very vital. And because of this series on the Psalms and, and prayer that we've been doing, he was encouraged to not just read the Psalms and close the book and go on, but pray through the Psalms, right? And he, was, he, would, he would take the verse, and as it was written, apply it in his own life and pray it to God in that form. And he, it, he said it just totally uh, revitalized, reinvigorated his prayer life. And I think it can do the same for you. Uh, start anywhere. Uh, any psalm will do. I, I think you could start with Psalm 86, in fact, because I can virtually guarantee you that somewhere in those 17 verses, something is going to apply to where you are right now in your life. In fact, I was going to offer a money-back guarantee of that. Like, whatever, if you don't find a verse in there, we'll give you whatever you offering you put in this week. We'll give it back to you. But then Dennis would have had a cardiac, right? So, so not actually offering that offer. But if you can't find a verse in those 17 that applies to you, I think we need to have a talk. Because it does, you're just not seeing it yet. All right. So, and, and literally, come to me. I'm serious about that. Let's have the conversation. But it's a great technique. You, you can actually pray through any portion of Scripture effectively, but the Psalms are already outlined, as they're already written as a prayer for you. So it's very easy to adapt them and bring them uh, together for that purpose. So, okay, um, it's, it's a whole thing on prayer. We need to wrap up in prayer. While I'm praying at the close of our, our message here, I'd like the prayer team to come forward. And uh, so let, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your many blessings. We thank you for your word. Oh, there's so much power there. I pray, Lord, that, that, the, that the word that was discussed this morning will find deep roots in our hearts and that it will work its way out in our lives in maybe even surprising ways to us. But in all things, may you be glorified. Uh, bless us with your abiding presence here, the, the presence of your spirit. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Before we wrap